I would not open the Word of God and would not go into class without prayer. We're on class number three in your booklet, and um, Shaken or Sealed, one of the more powerful classes, a class that we need to do some praying before we get into. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the opportunity of coming and studying your Word. We could be any one of a hundred places today, but here we are here as a group of youth and adults to pour over the Scripture to fix our minds on your word. May your eternal truths fill our hearts now and forever and prepare us for end time to know Jesus and to live with him forever in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. What if you're traveling on a train and your train's going from Minneapolis to Anchorage, Alaska? And you got on the train at night, and it's been pretty dark, and you haven't been able to guide yourself at all by the scenery as you've traveled. And the further you travel, the more doubtful you become. You wonder, am I on the right train after all? And then you begin to wonder. You begin to get some news reports. I wonder, is there a bridge out? Will in 3 o'clock in the morning we be going over a bridge, and will we tumble down? Will this train meet another train head-on? on a track and will it crash and really will this train ever get to the destination maybe it's going to stop uh, 20 miles 30 miles 40 miles from the destination maybe I'll have to get out of the train and walk see if all these kind of things going through your head will your knowledge of the train's safe arrival at the final destination affect what you do it certainly will If you know that that train is going off a bridge, you're going to get off at the stop before, right? If you know that the train's going to get hit head on and crash, you're going to get off at the stop before. If you know that the train's never going to make it to the destination, but you could stop at a station, get off at that station, get on another train and go to your destination, you would do that. Your knowledge of whether the train makes it through to the end will determine whether you stay aboard the train. He that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The train may go through a storm. The train may go through a valley. The train may, may, may have a lot of ice on the windows so you can't see clearly. The train may have an old grouchy engineer. The train may have a few people in the, uh, that are serving coffee. There may even be somebody that smokes ham in that train. (laughs) Don't carry this too far, please. (laughs) And you say, I don't like these people on this train. They shouldn't be drinking that coffee. I don't like these people on that train. They shouldn't be eating that uh, that, uh, that old uh, ham over there. The train may even have a car that plays some music. (laughs) There may even be religious music played in a certain way in one car. I'm getting off this train. That's offensive to me. The train may even have some people who, don't under, who wear certain things in dress that you wouldn't wear. But it's cold off the train, and it's icy off the train. There may be people on the train that uh, have jealousy and envy and uh, criticism. But if you know that ultimately the train is going through to the end, and it's not going to crash, and it's not going to stop before it gets to the final destination you are going to stay aboard the train and that's what I want to study with you today how 
Is this train going through? Will the Seventh-day Adventist Church survive? Will God call out a few from Adventism to form a separate body? Does the Bible teach a remnant within the remnant? Is that found in the Bible? Will the church split up into small groups? And will that ultimately happen? Where are we headed? Well, if you take your material, please, and turn to session three, page three. Session three, page three. And you'll notice that God has two methods of purifying his church. And what we're going to share in this session is that God is going to use a method different than he's ever used before, and a method rather different than he's ever used before to purify his church at any time. Throughout history, God has always purified, purified his church by calling out a faithful few. Let's go back, for example, to the days of Abraham. You're writing there the word Abraham. You see where we are? Session 3, page 3. God called out, who are you writing in there? Abraham. He called out Abraham from idolatry. And God said, Abraham, it's time to move. It's time to step out. It's time to leave idolatry behind. Abraham stepped out. Next, Abraham became the father of a nation. Abraham had sons and uh, Isaac and Esau. And then he had, and Isaac had sons, Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons and they became the 12 tribes of what? Israel. If some of you don't have material, you can look on with somebody that does. They had 12, they became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so God called, you're writing in, the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. So there's been this calling out, this calling out. And throughout history, God called out Abraham. Throughout history, God called out the nation of Israel. But then as Israel apostatized, what was God's next move? God called out what? New Testament believers from Judaism. So God calls out New Testament believers from Judaism. So first he calls out Abraham. Then God calls out the nation of Israel. They are his chosen people, his select few. Then God calls out New Testament believers from when Israel apostatizes. But then after the New Testament church continues for a while, and you have the union of church and state, you have the days of Constantine, you have the great apostasy, and what does God do when there is the great apostasy in the Dark Ages? God calls out the what? The reformers, doesn't he? And so God calls out the reformers out of the papacy. So God is always calling out. God is always calling out. God is always going out. Calls out Abraham. Calls out the nation of Israel. Calls out New Testament believers. Calls out reformers. God's method of purifying his church throughout the ages has been, rather than leave in the body those who are loyal and faithful, when the larger body apostatizes, what has God done? He has called out. And in fact, if you look at Protestantism, and there is a Reformation, and in that Reformation, the Reformation ultimately needs a Reformation. And so God calls out a faithful group of Bible students, and they become the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And Adventists believe that they've gathered up the gems of the teachings of the reformers and that these gems have formed a last day advent movement but here's the question 
Will God call out a small group out of the Adventist church? Will the Adventist church ultimately apostatize? Now, as you think about it logically, if God's method were this calling out, and suppose God would call a group out of the Adventist church, and that's what offshoots do. Offshoots shoot off. (laughs) So offshoots leave the main body, and they say, here are the errors in the main body, Here's the heresies in the main body. Here's the liberalism in the main body. We need to be pure. So they break off or shoot off. But if time would last, the same thing would happen to them. And they would become apostates, and there would be a small group that did what? Came out of them. And if time would last, what would happen? That group would be apostate, and there would be a group that would be caught out of them. So God has a design in his end time. His, you see the word church, you see the, if you look at uh, session three, page three, left-hand column, the name for church in the Greek language is ekklesia. Can you say that with me? Ekklesia. Ek means out of and klesia means called. So God's church is the called out body. Adventists are God's called out body. Now, God has always called out a body. In the last days, God's method is not a calling out, it's a shaking out. So the difference in the last days is this. Always God has called out a small group who would remain faithful and true to him. Now he shakes out the worldly liberal element and his method of purifying the church is a shaking out, not a calling out. We find that in the book of Hebrews. So please take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. God will have a church that appears as fair as the moon, as bright as the sun, as glorious as an army with banners, according to Song of Solomon. God will have a church, according to Ephesians, that will not have spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look first at Hebrews and then at the book of Ephesians. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 and 27. Let's look first at verse 25. Hebrews 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much shall we escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Whose voice then shook the earth. When did God's voice shake the earth? Sinai, when he gave the Ten Commandment law. So this is speaking about the law, isn't it? Whose voice then shook the earth, now he has promised. Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. At Sinai, God shook the earth when he spoke and he wrote the Ten Commandments on his finger with tables of stone. It was at that time that worldly Israel was brought to the test of obedience for the law of God. And when Moses came off the mountain, they were dancing around the golden calf. So it was, a, it was a test between what God said and what they did. It was a test between obedience and disobedience. It was a test between loyalty and disloyalty. Now verse 27. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. As of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. So the things that cannot be shaken, what happens to them? They remain. What happens to the things that are shaken? What happens to them? 
they're removed. The reason we are not interested in offshoots is because they do not remain, they shoot off. We are interested in those things when they are shaken, remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, loyal to Christ, faithful to the word of God, recognizing that God is going to have a corporate people, a church that will not be split up into independent atoms, but God will guide this ark through. Just as the wind blows on the ark in the days of Noah, just as the waves are high in the days of Noah, God's hand was upon that ark and he took it through the storm. Anybody who says to you that the only way to be a loyal, faithful Seventh-day Adventist is to become part of some small group that is shot off because they are the faithful ones is leading you into a deception. Because the Bible says, that which cannot be shaken remains. Now notice Ellen White's comment on this. If you'll notice, session 3, page 3, Selected Messages, volume 2, the box in the right-hand side. Box in the right-hand side of the page, the last quotation in the box. The church, let's read it together. The church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. Wait a minute. The church may appear as what? About to fall. Will there some liberal elements come into the church? Will there? Our eyes are not in the sand. We're not ostriches. We recognize that the church may appear as about to fall. But what does it say? It does not fall. It does what? Remains while the sinners of Zion are what? Sifted out. The chaff separated from the precious wheat. This is a terrible ordeal, but nevertheless it may take place. Now what is the difference between the shaking and the sifting? Let's suppose I have a jar here. And in that jar, I have walnuts and beans. You see the picture in the jar in your mind? Walnuts and beans. Okay. If I shake, and they're all mixed up, if I shake them enough, what's going to happen? The walnuts are going to go to the bottom, and the beans are going to go to the top, right? So the shaking occurs as God allows his message of truth in the indictment of the Holy Spirit to sweep through his churches. Men and women are on their knees. They're seeking God for the Holy Spirit in the latter rain. But some allow the worldly elements to occupy their mind and attention. Some are grasping this call for repentance and they're opening their hearts and crying out to God to be prepared for his soon coming. Others are absorbed and are occupied with the trends of the world. So the jar represents the church, and there's a shaking, shaking, shaking. And we'll show what brings the shaking soon. But there's this shaking that goes on in the church where there's a separation. Now let's suppose that I put holes in the top of the jar. And the holes were big enough to let the beans through and not big enough to let the walnuts through. The shaking occurs with the separation within. The sifting occurs with the corresponding leaving of the jar of the beans. So today, there's a great shaking that's taking place in the Adventist church. There is worldly trends are sweeping through the church. At times, there's doctrine that is not totally in harmony with what Scripture teaches. But yet there are those that are seeking God. There are those that are earnestly on their knees praying When the crisis breaks with the National Sunday Law, 
those who are already separated in their heart, mind, and lifestyle will leave. It will be easy for them to go then at a time of crisis. But until that time, the wheat and tares grow together what? Until the harvest. Oh, but I want to wheat. I want to pull out some of those tares. Pull out the tares in your own heart. Because some people you may think are tares may turn out to be wheat. And some people you may think to be wheat may turn out to be tares. And you may criticize them for what they wear and what they eat. But the criticism in your own heart is the cancer that destroys spirituality in your own life. The shaking will occur as a separation from within. But God will take care of the sifting. When the crisis comes, it will reveal what's in the heart already. The crisis does not determine what's in the heart. The crisis reveals what's in the heart. And so the crisis that breaks will bring the church forth purified. Look at the great destiny for God's church, Ephesians. Ephesians, here's the destiny for God's church. So the message of the shaking and the sifting is not a depressing message. It's a hopeful message. Because God is going to shake and shake and shake. And God is going to sift and sift and sift until God himself purifies the church. He's the one who's going to accomplish that by allowing certain events to occur. Ephesians chapter 5, we look there. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. What did Jesus do regarding the church? Jesus did what? He loved the church. So if in my heart I'm thinking, oh, the church is so liberal. Oh, the church is going off here, going off there. And if from my voice or from my pen I'm writing critical messages, I am writing against and preaching against and destroying the very thing that Jesus loves. Oh, far be it from me. To let one word come out of my mouth that is critical of the bride of Christ that Jesus loves. Because the Bible says Jesus loves what? The church. And what is Jesus going to do that he might sanctify and cleanse it? Praise God, Jesus is going to sanctify and cleanse his church. I thank God for that, don't you? And then it says, with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it. What's the it that he's going to present? The church to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But it should be holy and without blemish. So Jesus is going to get the job done. Praise the Lord. Jesus is going to get the job done. Will Jesus have a bride whose garments are not soiled? Will Jesus have a bride without wrinkle, spot, or any such thing? Will Jesus have a loyal bride that is only totally fully in love with him and doesn't go whoring out after the world? Jesus is going to have a wonderful bride, but he is going to get the job done. Don't jump off the train before it gets into final destination. Because the animals on the ship are not housebroken in Noah's boat, and there's a little stink at times on the ship. Don't jump off into the waves and get eaten up with the sharks. Let God do what God says he can do. He can cleanse his church. He can purify his church. And he indeed is going to do that. Now, what are the agencies that are going to bring about the shaking? And who will be shaken out? Page, session three, page four. There are four classes that will be shaken out. First, we'll name each class that will be shaken out. Then we will study those classes. The first class that are going to be shaken out, number one, the worldly. The worldly. Second class that are going to be shaken out, the conservatives. 
We'll show that from the Bible in the spirit of prophecy. What do we mean by that term, the world? First, who's going to go out? The liberals. Second, who's going to go out? The conservatives. Third, who's going to go out? The people are con- that are self-confident that they don't think they're a liberal or a conservative. <laughs> we're going to get them all before we're done. <laughs> who's going to be shaken out? First, the liberals. Second, the conservatives. Thirdly, the people that are so self-confident they don't think they're a liberal or a conservative, they're right in the middle. <laughs> Fourthly, the self-centered that don't think they're liberal, conservative, or self-confident, but they're just self-centered. <laughs> Who remains? Those that are in Jesus. They are those that are in Jesus. They are neither liberal nor conservative. They're in Jesus. They are neither self-confident. They're in Jesus. They're not self-centered. Those are in Jesus. Now let's look at those that will be shaken out. And let's look at some mini shakings that have taken place in the New Testament times. There's a man by the name of Demas that was shaken out. You find him, him in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. His name was Demas. He was with the Apostle Paul. He went on Paul's missionary journeys. He saw souls won for the kingdom of God. He saw Paul making great sacrifices for the kingdom. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, the apostle Paul talks about Demas. There was a time that Demas walked away. There was a time Demas no longer walked with Jesus. There was a time that, uh, with Paul. There was a time that, 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 that Demas turned his back on Paul. There was a time that the attractions of this world took him away from the preciousness of soul winning. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. For Demas has forsaken me. Why did he forsake you, Paul, having loved this present world? Demas loved this present world. Where is your heart? Where are your affections? What do you think about? What's the most important thing in your thought patterns? The way you know whether you are genuinely converted or not is what do you think about most? What do you love most? Do you love the Word of God? Do you love to pray? Does Jesus fill your heart totally? Or is it fashion or some Hollywood star or some sports figure? The question is not, is the Christian in the world? The question is, in the, wor- is the world in the Christian? Somebody put it this way, there's nothing wrong for the boat to be in the water as long as there's not a lot of water in the boat. (laughs) There's nothing wrong for the boat to be in the water. Christians are in the world, and that's no problem. It's when the world occupies our time and our attention. You see, all of us are going to have times in our lives where where some aspect of the world grips us, where something becomes predominant in our lives. And it's at those points that we kneel before God and we say, God, I'm a human being. Amen. I'm a human being. I will face challenges, tests, and temptations, but I want you to know that I want you number one in my life. Amen. Ellen White makes this fascinating statement about this first class, the liberal worldly class. She says, and you'll find it here at the box on the left, volume 5, page 81, those who have step by step 
step by step yielded to worldly demands. It is fascinating to me the language that is used, those who have step by step. You do not go from full conversion at GYC to open overt worldliness in one step. The devil is wise and cunning and subtle. So his strategy is to get us to take one step after another step after another step after another step. He takes one step at a time. A young woman some time ago, a young woman in her late 20s, told me a fascinating story. She had been working as a nutritionist in a hospital. And she had a new job offer for a pharmaceutical company to work for that company. The vice president took her out to eat and invited her to this lavish dinner. And then he said to her, we want to hire you and we're willing to pay you someplace to start between eighty dollars and $100,000 a year. No small salary. Plus, you will be able to have stocks in the company. We think you're a young woman with promise. We think you have great possibilities, and so we want to do that for you. And he said to her, we're going to offer you the job. She was a Seventh-day Adventist, and as she thought and prayed about it, she knew she had to bring up the issue of the Sabbath with him, so she did. And he said, no problem at all. You can have your Sabbaths off. But he said, you know, we do have just a couple Sabbaths a year, two, three, four Sabbath, where there's a big convention and a show, and we will expect you to be there, but I'm sure your pastor would sign a letter allowing you to, to go on those few Sabbaths a year. Because really, it's not a problem. You can have every Sabbath off, but we're only going to call you for these few a year. And she said, I'm awfully sorry, but I cannot accept the job offer. And he said, what do you mean? You're making a measly thirty-five, thirty-eight thousand a year, and I'm going to offer you ninety to a hundred thousand. I've told you you can have your Sabbaths off. And she said, "Sir, I don't mean to be arrogant, but she said, for me, it's not a matter of two or three Sabbaths a year. For me, it's a matter of conscience. And if I would yield in that point, I would yield in other points and ultimately lose my faith. Amen. And no job is willing to lose my faith." You would think that that man would want an employee like that. He looked her in the eyes and said, I'm awfully sorry, but I can't offer you the job. She walked away fully content. And when she told me the story, she wasn't upset about it at all. She said, I know I've made the right decision. Because it's not worth it. Step by, what's, what's that sentence say? Those who have step by step. The first step becomes, a, it, it's difficult. Then the next step is easier. The next step is easier. The next step is easier. Until those who have step-by-step step yielded to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs will not find it a hard matter to yield to the powers that be, rather than subject themselves to diversion, insult, threatened imprisonment, and death. In this time, in this time, the gold will be separated from the dross where? In the church. So the shaking will come when? At the time of the crisis and those who have step by step today yielded to worldly demands will be shaken out then. Second group that's shaken out are the superficial conservative class. Here it is. And uh, you'll find it here in number two, top right. This is from Great Controversy, page 625. The superficial conservative class whose influence has steadily retarded the progress of the work. 
will renounce their faith and take their stand with its avowed enemies toward whom sympathies they've long been weaving, leaning, tending. Who is this superficial conservative class? Who are they? Those are like the doubters. You know, you have evangelistic plans. It's not that they're theologically conservative. It is they're so conservative that the church has become a social club. They're so conservative. We love it here. Oh, please don't bring anybody else in because we got our 28 members. We got our 42 members. We are, we are the chosen few. They're like the doubters. They're, they're like Thomas, you know. You have the church board meeting. It can't be done. It's impossible. It never was done here before. We did an evangelistic meeting 22 years ago and nobody responded. And I know they wouldn't if we did another one 22 years later, you know. See, it, it's this, this, this element of doubt, this element of conservatism, this element you don't take a risk for God, this element that you don't pour your soul out passionately for God, this element that says they're, they're holding back the work. Their hearts are not open to see a community whom the Holy Spirit is working on. They simply are content with a superficial Christian experience. I'll come to church every Sabbath. Nobody will challenge me on the Sabbath. I'm faithful with my tithe. I'm not like those liberal people. But don't bother me on Tuesday or Wednesday night. I just want to come every Sabbath. We just want to sing, redeemed, I love to proclaim it. Lift up the trumpet, Jesus is coming again. Superficial conservative class. Holding back the work of God. I pray God will give us a generation that are sold out for the kingdom of God. Not fanatics. Loyal, committed, faithful, sold out for Jesus. Who reveal in their own lives the love of Jesus Christ. Who are not critical of others, but who are passionate in their own life about sharing the gospel. Because the the superficial conservative class, what's going to happen to them? They're gone. Why? Because, after all, although they were physically in the church, their hearts were really out all the time anyway. I'll go to church Sabbath morning and be faithful in my tithe, but I'll watch 12 hours of TV a week. (laughs) And maybe study my Sabbath school lesson 15 minutes. That's the superficial conservative cause. Their religious experience is superficial. I don't want to be one of the worldly class who step-by-step yield to worldly demands. Neither do I want to have a superficial Christian experience that is so shallow that the roots are not deep that when the sun comes up, it'll be destroyed. But there's another class that's going to go too. I study my Bible an hour a day. I have prayer half hour a day. I'm not going anywhere. Let those liberal people, they're going out. Too bad for them. Let those superficial conservatives. I'm deep. I studied Daniel and Revelation. I attended Mark Finley's class in end-time events. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. Second, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Maybe the ones that aren't going anywhere are the ones that are first to go somewhere. <laughs> and it's not the right place. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. I'll tell you, the more I study last day events, the more I study it on my knees and recognize that none of us have any stones to throw at anybody else. <laughs> Studies like this don't cause you to be self-righteous and arrogant. They cause you to be on your knees seeking God. 
when I look at myself, there is no way that I will make it through the crisis ahead. When I look at Jesus, there is no way that I won't make it through the crisis ahead. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're looking there at 1 Corinthians 10, and we're looking at verse 12, where it says, Therefore let him who thinks that he stands take heed lest he do what? Fall. Those that think he stands, let him take heed lest he falls. Ellen White says, Testimonies to the Church, volume 6. 6T, page 400. Those who've had great light and precious privileges, but have not improved them, will under one pretext or another go out from us. What have they had? Great light. They think they're going to stand, but they don't. They do what? They fall. Now, you know, I flew here from Orlando, Florida. Orlando is the home of the orange in America. It shares that distinction with California. And... I've learned about an interesting way they sort oranges in Florida. You have these oranges in these orange groves by the thousands and thousands. And the owners of the orange groves, like Tropicana orange juice and so forth, they go out and they'll take trucks out there and they have automatic orange pickers and they pick these uh, oranges and they'll put them by the tons in the truck. The truck takes them back to an air-conditioned warehouse where there's a conveyor belt. Now, let's suppose that oranges could talk. Now, this is not found in the Bible. Let's suppose that oranges could talk. And so the oranges are out there on the tree, and they're saying, one orange is saying to the other orange, boy, it's hot out here. Boy, it's really hot out here. And the truck drives up, and the automatic picker picks it. And all of these oranges are stacked in this trunk. They bring it to an air-conditioned warehouse. And they think, the oranges think this is Disneyland for the oranges. And they say, I heard some tourists one time talking about Disney. This is Disneyland. This is wonderful. It's an air-conditioned. They got us out of that hot sun. And they're put on the conveyor belt. Now, it's true there are conveyor belts. It's not true that oranges talk. It is true there are conveyor belts. So they put all these oranges on the conveyor belt, and the oranges are going along. And this is the way they sort orange in Florida. This is the way they do it. They sort them into grade A, B, and C. The C oranges are the smallest ones, and as they're going along this automated conveyor belt, there are holes. The holes are big enough for the C oranges to fall through, but too small for the B oranges to fall through. Then you go a little further, and there's holes big enough for the B oranges to fall through, but too small for the A oranges to fall through. And then they go through. So now you've got the picture. Oranges are talking out on the orange trees. They come into the, the truck. truck picks them up. They come into the conveyor belt. They're all there together, and they're bouncing along. They say, man, this is Disneyland for the oranges. This is wonderful. This is wonderful. And they come around a corner, and they come to the holes where the C oranges go through. And the C's go through, and they're squeezed up for orange juice. And the B's look at the A's, and they say, too bad for those little C's. They went through. They got shaken out. Too bad for them. And then the B's go around a corner, and there's a hole big enough for the B's, but too small for the A's. And there go all the B's. Orange juice. Tropicana. And the A's look at them. And the A's say, too bad for those B's and those C's. Those were the little guys. Those were the minnows. They only studied a little bit every day. They didn't know that much. Oh, those were the liberals. Oh, did you see that orange one she was wearing? Oh, did you see that one? These are the A's. And then you go right around the corner. 
and there's a hole big enough for the A's to go through. There's a hole big enough for you to go through. There's a hole big enough for you to go through. You're on the conveyor belt that's headed for eternity, and there are holes for you. But the solution is for the owner to pluck you and hold you in his hand so you never come and fall through those holes. Whether a person's a liberal, whether they're conservative, however you want to use those terms, which I think are real poor to use anyway, but worldly, whatever you want to use, whether a person is self-confident, whatever that person is, in the hands of Jesus, our lives are transformed and changed. And he molds us and shapes us with his Im- into his image. He fills our hearts and minds with his word. He strengthens us for the crisis ahead. There is no need for you to face the future with fear. You can face it with absolute confidence in Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus and by Jesus and through Jesus and because of Jesus, there is no way you're going to be shaken out. There is no way. We do not look at others with a critical viewpoint. We rather fill our hearts and minds with the love, grace, and goodness of Jesus. Now notice, who's going to be shaken out? The worldly, the superficial, the self-confident. Then there are the self-centered. The self-centered. Those whose religious experience centers around the self. Early writing says, bottom of the page four, the mighty shaking has commenced and will go on. And all will be shaken out who are not willing to take a bold and yielding stand for the truth to sacrifice for God and his cause. In other words, they're self-centered. They live self-centered lives. They're going out. Now, what are the agencies that are going to cause the shaking? We turn to the next page. This is critical. This is fundamental. This is really the heart of our class. Now, you see, in the last days, the icy, the, the winds are going to be blowing. In the last days, take your Bible, please. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. In the last days, every wind of doctrine is going to be blowing. Every wind. You're looking there at the book of Ephesians. And um, the Bible says in Ephesians, and you're looking there at chapter 4, verse 14. It's actually Ephesians 4, verse 14. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. What's going to blow, everybody? Every wind of doctrine. This material is not in your booklet. You can write it on your notes page if you want. You'll notice your notes page right at the end, uh, one page over. Every wind of doctrine. Let me tell you some of the winds that are going to blow. There are seven winds that are going to blow on the church and on the world before Jesus comes. There will be the whirlwind of lawlessness. That's one of the winds that's going to blow, the whirlwind of lawlessness. There'll be the icy breezes of formalism. Do you see some of those icy breezes of formalism that are blowing on the church today? The church becomes formal and cold. That's the icy breezes of formalism. This is every wind of doctrine. There'll be the fiery wind of fanaticism. If the devil doesn't get some churches with the icy wind of formalism, what's he going to do? He's going to get some with the fiery wind of fanaticism. There are the deadly, there's the deadly pestilence-laden breezes of heresy. You know, there are some winds that they, they carry on the winds, pestilence that's deadly. There's the deadly, pestilence-laden breezes of heresy. 
There are the gentle zephyrs of Laodiceanism. You know what a zephyr is? A zephyr is a still breeze that's warm that puts you to sleep. See, this is every wind of doctrine. The icy wind of formalism. The devil gets some people on that. The fiery wind of fanaticism. Oh, we got to pray all night? We'll get the Holy Spirit that way. Miracles, signs, wonders. That's the, the fire wind of fanaticism leading away from the character development like Jesus in studying the word. There's the deadly pestilence-laden breezes of heresy. Heresy will come in. There's the gentle zephyr. It's just this little gentle breeze puts you to sleep. There's the dust storms of doubt. You ever travel through Oklahoma with a dust storm blowing? The dust storm blows. What happens in a dust storm? You can't see where you're going. Insinuating doubt. Is there a real sanctuary up in heaven? I mean, maybe God used multiplied millions of years to bring the world into existence. You see, doubt, 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 doubt. Uh, Maybe the Bible is more culturally conditioned. Dust storms of doubt. You get people doubting and they step off their foundation. So you've got the icy breezes of formalism. You've got the fiery wind of fanaticism. You've got the deadly pestilence-laden breezes of heresy. You've got the gentle zephyrs of Laodiceanism. You've got the dust storms of doubt. You have the whirlwind of lawlessness. I've said that one. Did I give you six? Those must be six, right? Okay, one more I've got to give you then, right? These, these are the perfume-laden Breezes of pleasure. The perfume-laden breezes of pleasure. The perfume just blows through. The wind, the scent. And you're hypnotized with those perfume breezes of pleasure. You smell the intoxication of pleasure. And it intoxicates you. And that's all you can think about. It mesmerizes you. These are some of the winds that are going to be blowing. Now notice... Here, we're going to look at a fascinating Bible passage. What are the agencies that cause the shaking? Okay, number one, false doctrine. False doctrine is number one. You're looking on page six, session three. What are the agencies that cause the shaking? Number one is false doctrine. And I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you have not seen this before in your Bible, it is quite fascinating. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 to 17. The more I study the New Testament, the more I study the Apostle Paul and the things that produced a shaking in his day, the more I see that those are going to be repeated in our day. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. And 18, we're going to read. And 19. Yeah, that's a good section. 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 19. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of their hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved of God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like the cancer, Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort. I want to talk to you about the heresy of Hymenius and Philetus. Now, there are many heresies that will challenge God's people at the end time. But one heresy is the heresy of Hymenius and Philetus. Do you know what the heresy of Hymenius and Philetus is that will challenge Seventh-day Adventists? It will be one of the tests that comes to the Seventh-day Adventist church. It will be a very similar heresy to Hymenius and Philetus. Do you know what that is? 
Very fascinating. Look at the next verse. Who have strayed concerning the truth. So what happened to Hominius and Philetus? What did they do? Strayed. Now, what was the specific doctrine that they strayed on? And what was the principle behind that? Saying that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some. So Hymenaeus and Philetus said something about the resurrection. What did they say about the resurrection? It's already passed. Is there a resurrection? Yes. So were they right about the event? Yes, because there is a resurrection, right? So they're right about the event. What were they wrong about? The timing. Don't miss this now. So the heresy of Hymenaeus and Philetus has to do with what? Timing. Timing. I'd like to suggest to you four ways or three ways which the devil can use the deception of Hominius and Philetus that comes into the church today. The issue is not over the event, it is over timing. So, creation, the cross, and the coming of Christ. If you knock out those three things over the issue of timing, you destroy the faith of what Adventism is all about, and it becomes a Sabbath-keeping movement similar to Seventh-day Baptists. Okay, let me give you some examples. Okay. What the devil will attack is creation, the cross, and the coming of Christ, three C's. And he will introduce through sophisticated, incredibly subtle arguments, the heresy of Hymenaeus and Philetus. And that heresy has to do with timing. Now let me explain it to you this way. The fundamental issue of Hymenaeus and Philetus was not the resurrection. Because they believed in the resurrection, they just believed that it already occurred. So the fundamental issue was the timing of the resurrection. They had the right event at the wrong time. So timing becomes critical. If you can knock out creation over a timing issue, if you can knock out some of the issues on the cross over a timing issue, and if you can knock out the second coming of Christ on a timing issue, you effectively undermine the essence of what Adventism is all about. Now let me give you an example. Yet, here's a heresy. And I want to be clear that I'm stating these as heresy because sometimes when you do something on a tape, a person will take one sentence and say, Mark Finley said that, but they didn't say the paragraph before the paragraph after. And they didn't sit in the class. Okay, here's the timing issue. The heresy goes something like this. Yes, God created the world, but the seven-day creation are not literal days. And God was the first cause in the world. But this earth is millions and millions and millions of years old, and the creation week was not seven literal days. See, the event is right, God created the world, but the timing is what? It's all off. That's the, that's the Arminius and Philetus. And once you take that position, if you take the position that there is no seven-day creation, what does that do to the Sabbath? How can you have a seventh-day memorial of creation when there was, no, in effect, no creation? What difference does a seventh-day Sabbath make and you call the whole Ten Commandment law written with the finger of God into question? So once you accept the long ages of creation, and we could look at many other reasons why that is a heresy and it doesn't stand up, but just from this one standpoint, it calls into question 
How can the Sabbath be attested in time as a memorial of creation if creation took place over millions of years? So that becomes a heresy of Aminius and Philetus. Now take the cross. Here's another heresy that has to do with timing that has to do with the cross. It is all finished at the cross. Nothing more after that. That uh, at the cross, the complete plan of salvation was finished. Now it is true that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross was complete. It is true that you can add nothing to the grace of Christ that was given on the cross. But it's also true that in the sanctuary of the Old Testament, you need a dying lamb and a living priest. It is also true that unless you have the Christ as our high priest applying the blood of what he wrought out on the cross, his cross is not effectual to the salvation of all mankind unless he applies it to believers who accept the benefits of the cross in heaven. So you can introduce a heresy by failing to recognize the truthfulness of the high priestly ministry of Jesus and its validity in the sanctuary. Jesus is just as much the priest as he is the dying lamb. So timing issues become critical. Take this coming of Christ. Sure, Adventists believe Jesus is going to come, but he may not come for another million years. They usually won't say a million, a thousand years. There is no sense that he's coming soon, no urgency. Well, if you take away the urgency of the coming of Christ, what do you do to the Advent movement? See, you undermine the Sabbath on an issue of timing. You undermine the high priestly ministry of the, of the, in Jesus in heaven on the issue of timing. And you undermine the whole concept of the proclamation and preparing of people for the coming of Jesus on the issue of timing. So, heresies will come. Shall we expect them? Yes. Notice, here, left-hand side, session 3, page 6, box on the left. Quoting from 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Philip's translation. Very fascinating to me, the way Philip's translates this. The Spirit says expressly that in the after times or last days, some will desert from the faith and give their minds to subversive doctrines inspired by devils. Subversive doctrines inspired by devils. Testimonies to Ministers, page 12. When the shaking comes by the introduction of false theories. So Ellen White says that one of the agencies of the shaking is what? False what? Theories. These surface readers anchored nowhere are like sifting sand. Testimonies, volume 5, page 80. The days are fast approaching. Will there be great perplexity and confusion? Satan, clothed in angels' robes, will deceive, if possible, the very elect. There will be God's many and Lord's many. Every wind of doctrine will be blowing. God calls us to be anchored in his what? Word. First class, they're shaken out or shaken out by false doctrine. Second class, go out by miracles. Now, here's a very troubling statement. So you're writing on number two, miracles. But here's a troubling statement. You find it in volume two, page second selected messages, page 380. Second selected messages, page 380. And then back on page 53. You put those two statements together. Satan will work his miracles to deceive. You see that on number two, left-hand side. He will set up his power as supreme. He will make people sick. Who makes people sick? He makes them sick. He makes these people sick. Then suddenly remove from them his satanic power. They will then be regarded as healed. So isn't that just like the devil? What does he do? He leads them to make poor choices so they get sick. Then he removes that hellish power so that what happens? They think they're healed. 
Now, the last statement is one of the most troubling statements in all the writings of Ellen White. These works of apparent healing will bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test. I did not write those words. I simply read them. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Ellen White says that one of the things that is going to bring Adventists to the test are healing, false healing. I've thought about that some. When you have spiritual lethargy in the church and formalism and coldness, but you have hearts that are longing for genuine revival, but you don't have a base of anchor in the word of God, the devil often changes his strategy. So on the one hand, he will work to make the church cold to prepare it for the false revival of counterfeit miracles. And so Adventists, not anchored in the word, not filled with the word, at times will accept the counterfeit. And it says, she says, these works of apparent healing will bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test. Remember, God can work miracles. Remember, God will work miracles. Remember, we can expect marvelous things in the last days. But we seek not the miracle. We seek the glory of God. We seek not the gifts of the Spirit to exalt ourselves, but the fruits of the Spirit to reveal the character of Jesus. And we look at the gifts of the Spirit as God's ministry vehicles or ministry gifts. The gifts of the Spirit are not to exalt ourselves. They are given to us by a loving God to do ministry, to reach a lost world for Christ. But may I ask you a question? Why would God give us the gifts of the Spirit if we don't hunger after the fruits of the Spirit? Would that not simply harden our hearts in egotistical pride? And if the gifts of the Spirit are for the purpose of witness and ministry to reach a lost world, why would God give the gifts of the Spirit to a church that has little compassion for the lost world? If you want to see miracles, get involved in soul winning. If you want to see miracles, get involved in Bible studies. If you want to see miracles, go out and take a risk for Christ where he has to work through your life, giving you those gifts of the Spirit to accomplish their purpose, and that's to win the lost. See, it is a distortion to have the idea that that the gifts of the Spirit are manifest in this local congregation inside this church simply to edify and exalt ourselves so we have a feeling of sensational euphoria. The purpose of the gifts of the Spirit is to do ministry to reach a lost world for Christ. Adventists, longing for a renewed religious experience, can often be deceived unless they understand that the content of that experience is based on the word of the living God. May I ask you another question that I don't want you to answer, but I want you to think about If the service consists of 43 minutes of music and seven minutes of a sermon 
with a five-minute illustration and a Bible text tacked on at the end, is that the kind of service that prepares people for the true or false revival? That bears a lot of thinking, doesn't it? It bears a lot of thinking. Is the function of the service to make people feel good or to develop holiness in the hearts and minds of God's people to prepare them for the coming of the Lord? Questions that need some thinking. Okay, what are the agencies that cause the shaking? False doctrines. Secondly, miracles. Thirdly, persecution. Uh, Bottom of the page, Great Controversy 608. As the storm approaches, a large class, what kind of a class? Large, who profess faith in the third angel's message. Are these nominal Protestants? No, they profess faith in the third angel's message, but they've not been sanctified through obedience to the truth. Abandon their position, join the ranks of the opposition. So as the storm approaches, what happens? There is a large class, according to this reference, that will ultimately leave. Why? Because their sympathies have been leading that way anyway. So What causes this shaking? False doctrines, false miracles, persecutions. And of course, there is the message to the Laodicean church. And we're going to finish with this section today, uh, of this section by looking at the message to the Laodicea just for a few minutes before this aspect of class comes to a close. Notice Ellen White says, early writings, page 270. I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen and was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. This will have its effect on the heart of the receiver. Where does the straight testimony have its effect? Upon who? All those people in my church, they need the straight testimony. I can't wait till I go back. I'm going to really give it to them. Is that what this is talking about? What is the straight testimony? The straight testimony is God lovingly putting his arms around me and saying, Mark, you know, there's a little pride in your heart, and I love you so much I want to tell you about it. It's Jesus putting his arms around me and saying, you know, you were a little too uh, critical of that other brother. That's what the straight testimony is all about. Notice where the straight testimony has its effect. I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen. I was shown it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. Jesus is the true witness. This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver. It will lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth. So first, there is a a message that affects our hearts. Then that leads me to exalt the whole standard in my own life. Then I share the truth of God's love, his grace, his forgiveness, his power, his life-changing power. Some don't want to bear it. They rise up against it. And this is what causes a shaking among God's people. I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. I want to show you some things in the Laodicean message. I pray that God will take these next few moments and open our hearts, that God will do something right here today among us that is different, that is new, that is fresh, that the Spirit will come down among us. I believe that in the next few minutes, some man, some woman, some boy, some girl is going to be touched by the Spirit, that God is going to touch somebody, that God is going to touch somebody here today. Revelation 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write. And I need to tell you a little bit about Laodicea. Laodicea is in Turkey. It's across from Hierapolis. Hierapolis is where the great um, mineral springs came out in ages past, and they still come out today. The water is very hot. It carried by aqueducts across the valley to Laodicea. It became lukewarm. 
Laodicea had a population of 150,000 people. When I first began to go there, it was not yet excavated. And I used to, I've wandered over the grounds of Laodicea, saw the ruins, but now the University of Pamukkale is excavating it. It's a marvelous place to go to today. And um, Laodicea had a population of 150,000. Laodicea had a medical university. It was known, renowned for its medical university. The medical university featured, specialized in ISAV. And it produced a powder that you put a little liquid with, and they came from all over the world to get eye, their eyes cured at the university, the medical university at Laodicea. Second, Laodicea was a fashion center, and uh, they produced uh, garments. It was the Paris, the London of its day, and the garments were dyed in purple. Any woman that was high society fashion, she would get garments from the garment industry at Laodicea. Thirdly, banking. They minted coins there. They were so wealthy that when Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake in about 60, 61, 62 AD, it was an outpost of Rome. So the Romans said, you're one of our outposts. We'll rebuild the city. The Laodiceans said, forget it. We got enough money of our own. We don't want any money from you and we won't take it. So they were, the Laodiceans were proud. They were wealthy. They were affluent. It was a great sport center. You can go there today and there's the Hippodrome. The Hippodrome would seat probably 25 to 30,000 where they had the chariot races. They have the ruins of the uh, stadium there where they had the playhouse, the theater, sat about mm, 10,000, 8 to 10,000. And you could, musical uh, uh, scores would be played there. The actors would be there. So when you think of Laodicea, what are you thinking about? Fashion. You're thinking about medical university. You're thinking about sophistication. You're thinking about intelligence. You're thinking about money. You're thinking about sports. You're thinking about a, a sex-centered, thrill-jaded, morally twisted, spiritually dwarfed society. That's what you're thinking about. That's Laodicea. You're thinking about a complacency. Life is wonderful. Life is great. You see, you're thinking about American culture. You're thinking about suburban American Adventists. You're thinking about a complacency, a sleepiness. You're thinking about, we have what we need. We have the Word of God. We, have, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We, we have everything we need. You see, you're, you're thinking about this self-sufficient, smug complacency that settles down over me, over you. When we think of Laodicea, we're not thinking of them. We're thinking of us. When we think of Laodicea, we're not thinking of those people over there. We're thinking about these people sitting in here. We're thinking about our smugness and our complacency and our lack of fervor and our lack of passion. That's what we're thinking about. Notice what he says. These things, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness. He is the Amen. Amen means so be it. He is the one who makes the declaration and so be it. He is the faithful and he's the true witness. He is the one that is going to truly witness to the condition of our hearts and our complacency and our pride and our arrogance and our lustful thoughts and our critical tongues and our selfishness and our greed. He's the true witness, but he's so faithful. He's so gentle with us. He shares it with a tear in his eye and with his arm around us. Notice he's the beginning of the creation of God. What does that mean, the beginning of the creation of God? And why introduce the Laodicean message with the beginning of the creation of God? The word in Greek is arche. It means beginner, the first cause of the creation of God. The one that was the active agent in creation. 
that spoke and called worlds into existence. That one gives the Laodicean message because he is the only one that can work the miracle of creation in our hearts. He is the one that can create something out of nothing. He is the one that can change our complacency. We come to the all-powerful creator and we ask him to recreate us inside. It says, I know your works that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot nor cold. Because you're not hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I'm spiritually rich. I have the three angels' message. I don't have any need of anything. But you don't know what I want to do with you. You say you're clothed, but you're really wretched. You say you're rich, but you're really miserably and poor. You say you see, but you're really blind. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Genuine faith that works by love. I want you to be rich in my word. I want you to know me, and I want my righteousness to fill you. He says, I stand at the door and knock, and you open the door, and I'm going to come in, and I'm going to enable you to overcome. The all-powerful creator speaks in tenderest tones of love to you and me this afternoon, and the all-powerful creator says, I want to come into your life, and whatever you are today, I want to make you over again. I want to change attitudes in your heart. I want to change habits in your life. I want to work a miracle inside of you. I am the all-powerful creator, Jesus says. And he says to Laodicea, this message is filled with hope. Because as you've been struggling on your own, and you've been trying to live that righteous life, but you haven't been able to do it. As you've been trying to overcome those attitudes, but you haven't been able to do it. As you've been trying to overcome those habits in your life, but you haven't been able to do it. Jesus says, I'm going to do what you could never do. Just like I worked a miracle at creation, just as I spoke and worlds came into existence, just as I spoke and earth was carpeted with living green, just as I spoke and the sun, moon, and stars appeared, just as I spoke and fruit trees appeared, I will speak the word. And through my living word, your heart will be changed and you're going to be made over again. And I'm going to make you into the generation of young people that you ought to be. The latency and messages for me, the latency and messages for you, the latency and message is a call that every single day we come to him. We allow him to recreate in us the very image that he wants to fill our hearts so his love flows through our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that all the demons in hell cannot shake us out of the hand of Jesus. We thank you so much that all the power of the enemy can't move us from you. Lord, it amazes us how great you are. We don't need to fear what's coming. We don't need to have our knees knock and our hands tremble because the living Christ will work the miracle in us so that we can stand in the time of crisis. He'll give us the courage. His courage becomes ours. His strength becomes ours. His righteousness becomes ours. His love becomes ours. Thank you, Lord, that you can do more than we ask or think. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at www.audioverse.org and at www.hopevideo.com